to a special episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is the real impact of the crisis on valuations and the independent space as a whole, a conversation with Matt Crow, president of valuation firm Mercer Capital. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you're not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in the series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, please feel free to share it widely. We record this episode at a time where change has become the new norm. Each day, we wake to an update on the virus and the economy, two things that have become intrinsically linked together, creating an unprecedented level of disruption and unease that impacts us us all. Yet we know this will pass, a sentiment that allows us to look forward and plan for life in a post-COVID-19 world. With that in mind, I'm grateful to have today's guest on the show. The truth is, he was originally scheduled for an episode to be aired later this year. But with all that's going on, I thought it made sense to tap into his expertise today. Matt Crow, president of Mercer Capital, is one of the leading authorities on firm valuations in the wealth management space. M&A in the RIA segment has been quite frothy for a long time. But the big question on everyone's mind, including prospective breakaways, as well as independent business owners, is how will this crisis impact valuations and the marketplace overall? Matt shares his knowledge generously through his firm's weekly blog, RIA Valuation Insights, as well as in the media. Our goal in this episode is to get Matt's take on where we are now and what he anticipates for the future. But even more importantly, we'll talk about actionable steps you can be taking today to positively impact your business valuation going forward. So let's get to it. Matt, thank you so very much for joining us on a moment's notice at an unprecedented time. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's jump in. Lots to talk about. So first of all, I guess, give us a little background. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. I'm probably the luckiest person you're ever going to meet. I was just an average kid who grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, met my wife in college, and uh, that was probably the start of things just kind of working out for me. Uh, We both went to graduate school at UNC, and after we finished up there, we moved to Memphis. My wife is from Memphis. I met Chris Mercer shortly after moving to Memphis uh, and got a job uh, at Mercer Capital as a financial analyst. Fifteen years later, I had uh, outlasted uh, most people on the org chart above me and uh, became president of the company. And I was 40 years old, and that was 11 years ago. And I've been handling that job since then. I guess I uh, I do a fair amount of uh, administrative things here as president, uh, but I knew uh, when I took the head job at 40 that uh, I was too young to become overhead uh, and I like working with clients. So uh, I still do uh, a lot of uh, practice um, in addition to my administrative work. 
My wife and I still live in Memphis. We've got two daughters, one who's in college, one who's in high school, although they're both in school uh, at home right now because of uh, all the coronavirus stuff. And we have a 13-year-old beagle named Buttercup who is uh, very much enjoying everybody being around more. Oh, I bet he is. Lucky beagle. Lucky, lucky. Okay, so tell us about Mercer Capital and the work that it does. Who are your clients and how does a valuation consultant differ from an investment banker? Sure. Mercer Capital started in 82. Uh, it was doing uh, valuation and turnaround consulting during the SNL crisis. Uh, and it branched out into other working with other financial services entities beyond just depository institutions. We work with clients across the country now and, and beyond the U.S. to some extent uh, and do a broad range of financial services and corporate finance, but all tied together by a theme of uh, valuation. Most of our clients for my group, it's a wide range of investment management firms. We work with wealth managers and asset managers, uh, mutual fund companies, independent trust companies, consultants, and the like. And they come to us for uh, ownership transition issues, shareholder disputes. We do annual work for people for buy-sell agreements. Uh, the odd marital dissolution here and there. Um, and we do occasionally advise on transactions uh, when that's the right place for us to be. We are different than the boutique uh, transaction advisory firms that serve the RIA space. There are some great ones out there and, and they're good friends of ours. I, I usually like to explain that our Venn diagrams overlap a little bit. 80% of what we do is maybe 20% of what they do and vice versa. They will get pulled in on valuation issues from time to time when it makes sense for them to be there. Uh, we'll get pulled in on transaction advisory issues from time to time when it makes sense for us to be there. But we're typically focused on um, valuing uh, entities when in a theoretical context, when there is no active negotiation going on. The investment bankers who serve the space, on the other hand, don't usually look at the world from that perspective. They're more involved in uh, people who are advising when there is real money at stake. Got it. Thank you for that. All right, let's shift gears and spend some time talking about what's most relevant to everyone right now. I guess, first off, what impact do you think this crisis will have on M&A, on valuations in the RIA industry as a whole? I don't think that the underlying causes of merger and acquisitions within the RIA industry are really disrupted by this. In some cases, especially on the seller side, it may bring more sellers to the table. I heard people uh, prior to this crisis, uh, a number that was frequently bandied about was that there were 50 buyers for every one seller in the industry. I have no idea who calculated that or how they came about it. But certainly as we stand here looking forward and trying to figure out how things are going to feel and operate in a month or so, you're probably going to see some buyers that are going to have to back away from the RIA M&A space because they're not uh, sufficiently capitalized to continue their expansion uh, plans. And on the other hand, on the seller side, I think people who were considering selling in the next few years uh, may get there sooner rather than later, simply because they're going to be tired. This is a very trying time on people in our industry 
it certainly is a time that uh, cash looks more significant than stock. And so people will be more motivated to monetize their interest in uh, RIAs uh, coming out of this, at least for a while, than they might have been otherwise. Yeah, I think that that's valid. And I think we see it the same way that the strong buyers, well capitalized, will be stronger and probably more aggressive and we'll see some real buying opportunities. And I'm wondering about the standalone RIAs. I mean, you raise a good point. There's two things at play here. One is sort of the emotional aspect of feeling exhausted and living through stress. And those that might be closer to retirement might look to accelerate time horizon. But the second thing at play is just the economics, that a standalone independent that isn't as well scaled as it could be, that doesn't have the bandwidth and the margins are being compressed further. How will this crisis impact them? Well, to put it in the context that you mentioned, obviously firms that are feeling more vulnerable post-crisis are going to be more inclined to throw in the towel and join in with someone else. It certainly is a time in which everybody's reevaluating their model to figure out how sustainable it is in a variety of market circumstances, and they aren't all. That said, sometimes these models are about as flexible as people want to make them be. And if you can use this as an opportunity to reorganize your compensation and the other aspects of your overhead structure, a lot of independent RIAs that might have otherwise struggled coming out of this crisis can probably do very well. That actually brings me to my next question. So who do you think the most active buyers have been and who will be the most active buyers, the buyers that won't back away, that will be able to withstand this and thrive because of it? Uh, The active buyers that have real equity in their capital structures uh, will be able to take advantage of this time. Those who've relied heavily on debt financing are going to be much more stretched. I think that one aspect of this that's going to unfold coming out of the crisis is the degree to which big banks funded sponsor acquisition activities on the basis of maybe not the most robust uh, projections of uh, entity economics. Um, And as a consequence, uh, a lot of those deals are not going to look very good in the rearview mirror. So getting acquisition capital through lending coming out of this, I think is going to be very difficult. But for those who have equity in hand, cash is king, and uh, it's going to be an opportunity to uh, capitalize on that. Got it. And what about valuations themselves? If you had a crystal ball, how do you expect valuations to be impacted? I mean, from where we sit, it was a frothy M&A market and valuations were high. And as you said, you know, even if it was just anecdotally, there were 50 buyers for every one seller or something close to it. And as a result, valuations were high and robust. How do you expect those valuations to change as we move forward? Value is a construct of earnings and a multiple. I don't think, candidly, that the multiples are going to change a whole lot. I think the expected rates of return uh, embedded in those capitalization rates usually are providing some kind of a premium return to ultimately to some kind of inflation expectation. 
well, the risks associated with the industry may be perceived to be higher coming out of this than it was going into it. I think the expectations of inflation are going to drop. And so as a result, the cap rates may not be that different and the multiples may not be that different. On the earnings side of the equation, of course, things are very different. Earnings are going to be impacted significantly by this if, if we don't uh, have a, a V-shaped market recovery, which not many people are expecting right now. And as earnings drop, the ultimate values of these entities will drop. Now, that's a perspective, I guess you'd say, on valuation itself. The question is going to be, how is that really expressed in transactions? Potential outcome, Mindy, is that an entity that two months ago might have transacted for, let's say, $20 million, and 75% of that would have been paid up front, and 25% of it would have been paid in some kind of performance-based earnout. For a while, probably the best way to keep those deals alive is going to keep the top line number the same, mm -hmm. but to pay less of it as a down payment or a, a upfront payment and more of it in a performance-based perspective like an earnout. And as a consequence, if we see market recovery and performance recovery at the firms, then the ultimate transaction value of these RIAs coming out of this crisis isn't going to change very much. If on the other hand, we're in for a more lengthy crawl out of this bear market, it's going to be expressed in less deal consideration after the dust settles. Right. So actually, that's incredibly helpful. So I guess one question is, what can a prospective seller do then to impact those multiples, to make sure that the multiple stays the same and that the structure of the deal is as favorable to the seller as possible? Coming out of this crisis, we're going to know a little bit more about who's built an all-weather organization and who hasn't. This has been a very tough market circumstance. We've had a low volatility environment for 11 years. And once the clouds break from the storm, we're going to see whose margin structure was more at risk and who was growing because of marketing as opposed to markets. If you have built an organization that has thrived because you were adding clients and adding assets from those clients, net of payouts and net of terminations, that's going to hold uh, or support your multiple relative to those uh, firms that were really relying on the uplift in the markets to provide growth in AUM and therefore growth in revenue. That's really always been the case. I just think that there's going to be more of a spotlight on that issue coming out of this crisis than there would have been otherwise. Yeah, I, I think that that's very reasonable. And Matt, can you comment for a minute just for perspective? So let's say you're talking about a seller with $500 million under management. That is a firm built, let's take the positive side, a firm built for success, a firm that was thriving, that was not reliant just on upticks in the market, but growing AUM and, and growing and checks a lot of the boxes in terms of a firm that's built for, as you said, an all-weather firm. And I like that term. I know it's dependent on a million things, especially now, but what would a range be in terms of a multiple for, say, a $500 million seller? 
You know, I think the range prior to and even coming out of this is going to be somewhere in that upper single-digit multiple of uh, distributable cash flow. And I don't think that's really going to change as a consequence of this. Again, the the tricky aspect of relating that back to value is going to be what terms come along. Yeah, the structure, the value. of course. Yeah, and how that ultimately affects the consideration received by the seller and paid by the buyer. There's going to be a need on buyer's parts uh, because I think people aren't going to be quite as willing to throw capital at the space as they were prior to this crisis, a need to prove or to de-risk transactions. And from the seller's perspective, they really want to go through with the transaction. They're going to kind of have to go along with that perspective. Yeah. And again, for perspective, if we were talking about a billion dollar seller, how does that, so if the multiple for a $500 million firm, an all weather firm, if you will, is in the high single digits, how does that multiple change at a billion dollars? I don't think it changes at a billion dollars. I think the multiple starts getting interesting when you're scaling well beyond that. It has a little bit to do, Mindy, just with the supply of firms there. Once you get to sort of the $5 billion-ish AUM and up firms, the air gets pretty thin and the opportunities to acquire firms at that scale are much smaller for buyers. Uh, so they're willing to put in higher multiples, starting to get into kind of your low do- double-digit multiples because they can accomplish as much with one transaction there as they could with several transactions of smaller firms, and that de-risks their acquisition model as well. Yeah. Okay, so let's go in the other direction. How about a $300 million firm? Yeah, so that's a lot tougher because there are lots of those out there, uh, and those are truly owner-operator businesses where the transferability of the relationships in many cases um, is much more contingent on the behavior of the client relationship people post-transaction and their success in handing over uh, their client to a buyer. So the multiple is going to drop in those cases, and it's probably going to be more in the five to seven range times distributable cash flow. And there, even there, the amount of deal consideration that is contingent on the success of the transaction versus being a down payment goes up. Yeah, of course. Okay. It makes sense. So we always talk about beginning with the end in mind. For someone who's either just launched a firm or about to, especially in light of this health and financial crisis, what are some of the most important things they should be thinking about, about building a firm the right way, and to use your terms, building an all-weather firm? Their model needs to be flexible enough to operate in most market conditions. If you can create a firm, and it is kind of an interesting and golden opportunity to start from scratch because you can build something that is more sustainable than if you're trying to change something that already exists. I think everybody needs clients who are committed to the type of work that the firm wants to do. It's a good time to remember that portfolios uh, for clients aren't just diversified for the risk management of the client, but it's also a risk management tool for the firm itself. The less volatile assets under management are, the less volatile the revenue stream and the margins are of the uh, firm. 
margin structures that are forgiving are very useful in uh, um, in circumstances like this, and and that really means less compensation that's uh, fixed in nature and uh, more that is flexible with the profitability of the firm kind of acts as a shock absorber to the sustainability of the organization when it hits big market bumps in the road like we're seeing right now. And then finally, there's usually not much emphasis on the balance sheet itself in an investment management firm. The balance sheet is usually kind of an afterthought but this, times like this are a good reminder that even for a professional practice type business like a wealth management firm, it's important that balance sheets be well capitalized. Debt is kind of an anathema in professional service environments, and you've got to have the working capital available to weather some bad quarters because every few years or so, it was easy to forget in an 11-year-long bull market that bad quarters happen from time to time. But we now reminded that they do. And uh, as a consequence of that, you've got to be able to keep your team together and your clients serviced in circumstances like the ones we're in. Yeah, I imagine this will go down in the history books as the world's greatest reminder of what could come and prudent, being prudent about everything. Let me ask you a question. You mentioned we talk about the most active buyers, and they'll be the ones that are obviously themselves the most all-weather firms built to sustain this without a lot of debt on their balance sheet. But we know that there are a lot of different categories, kinds of buyers from larger RIA firms to private equity investors, to banks, to roll-ups and others. Just if you could give us a two-minute overview on each of those different categories, sort of what they are, and how would you counsel a prospective seller on which of those options would be the best buyer for them? When we're at our best, I think our starting point is one to sort of help the seller think through whether or not their best option is to sell externally or internally. We talk a lot in our industry about M&A, and that tends to skip right over the issue of internal succession. And that's still a significant pathway for a lot of firms. But if they're not going to sell internally, if that's not really an option, then as you mentioned, the question is, do you pair up with another firm in your area? Do you try to go with a larger regional registered investment advisor? Do you talk to private equity or do you go with a roll-up? Um, I don't think we're going to see banks very active for a while right now because the banking industry is going to be busy trying to get its act together. Other people in my firm do a lot of work with banks and their net interest margins are getting hit pretty hard by all of this. They're better capitalized than they were going into the credit crisis, but they've still got a lot of work to do to get their own house in order coming out of the situation that we're in right now. So I don't think we're going to see commercial banks themselves very active in the RIA space for a little while. The private equity industry, you know, what I usually tell clients is that's a tough place to go to the extent that you've got funds investing in RIAs because RIAs are very long-term businesses and private equity funds are fairly short-term vehicles. And so selling to somebody who really wants to lever grow and sell it to someone else in three to five years is a tough position to be in. Something that sellers have to remember is this doesn't tend to be a business where you can hand over the keys 
and get your check and go about your business, a lot of the consideration, and as I've said earlier, will be more so following this crisis, more of the consideration is going to be paid in earnouts. Well, that means the sellers are going to be more involved in the business and for longer and more incented to be involved in the business for longer post-transaction now than they would have been in a deal that was cut a few months ago. Was a consequence of what we'll be talking to sellers about, I think, as much as anything is who do you want to be in business with? Is it somebody in your area, somebody you respect who's a larger local RIA, or are you interested in one of these national models? Because whatever suits them the best is probably going to be the best deal for them because they're effectively going to be going to work with their buyer for a considerable amount of time after the deal closes. So let me ask you a question about private equity. I know you've written a lot about it and about the growing trend of private equity investors making their way into the RIA space, particularly through RIA consolidators. And you've cited examples in some of the things I've read you've written that include Thomas H. Lee's investment in Hightower, General Atlantic in Creative Planning, TA Associates and Wealth Enhancement Group, and others. So it raises the question, one, you mentioned that, in my words, there is an incongruence between the long-term focus of a seller and the short-term focus, if you will, of a private equity investor. So what you're saying, I think, is that a private equity investor in a standalone seller may not be the best fit, especially right now. But do you see that as being a good fit for the roll-ups or consolidators like a high tower and others in that category? Well, private equity has been very interested in the RIA space because it was a way to capture a fixed income-like instrument in a yield-starved environment. We haven't had a very good high-yielding fixed income instruments available to uh, investors in a long time. Uh, RIAs are, have been seen as a fairly reliable, stable source of distributable cash flow and therefore were the kind of industry that could be levered effectively and, and grown. You know, now we've been through this kind of dip and coming back up again, I think the private equity industry is going to remain interested in the RIA space, but I think there are places potentially where it has become overextended. I mentioned earlier the ones that are more uh, dependent on debt financing are going to have a harder time obtaining that going forward, and so it's going to be tougher for them to stay in the space. Um, and the ones that have been willing to put more equity into it, well, they've got cash now to work with. I think private equity has had a big impact on the uh, headlines about valuation in the industry, but maybe not as much on the actual values themselves. I haven't felt like for most deals, absent the few mega deals, I haven't felt like for most deals that you saw valuations in the last few years biased upward, even though there was a lot of private equity money chasing the space. They've got returns that they've got to prove back to their investors, and so they've got limitations on how much they can pay for RIAs, and that really never changed. 
coming out of this crisis, it's even less likely to change. And probably everybody's going to be sharpening their pencil a little more than they were. So that speaks to the notion of valuation. But I guess from an individual seller's perspective. So I'm the business owner of a $300 million RIA. I have, I want to sell. I want to do a deal. I have my choice of buyers, whether those buyers be another like-minded or like-size RIA in my market, a larger RIA, a firm like a high tower, focus financial or something of the sort, or a larger RIA. So the question becomes, if I think about a private equity-backed firm, let's use Hightower, and I'm not picking on Hightower, good or bad, but what are, from your perspective, the advantages and disadvantages to a seller in selling to a firm that is private equity-backed? I think the advantage of selling to a firm that's private equity-backed is there is a more developed program for integrating the acquisition into the organization. There's experience in that. There's more uniformity in the transaction documentation, uh, more knowledge of how to get client consents and move relationships over. You know, with scale comes expertise, and that can be a beautiful thing um, if you want reliability um, in your ultimate acquisition partner. The flip side to it is there's really less relationship per se involved in that kind of a transaction. And so if you instead are more interested in what the post-transaction relationship or working environment is going to be like, and you know someone in the space in your area that you trust and respect and you understand their culture and you think it lines up very well with your own firms and the way it handles clients and et cetera, then that can be a much more comfortable kind of transaction for people to enter into. And in general, Mindy, I'll tell you that I find that sellers will default to a known quantity in choosing a buyer before they will default to the deal that looks best on paper. Yeah, well, and that certainly makes sense. So how about the granddaddy deal of it all of the year? What are your thoughts on the sale of Joe Duran's United Capital to Goldman Sachs? Was it good for Joe Duran, good for the advisors under the United Capital umbrella, and good for the industry? I certainly think it was good for Joe Duran or he wouldn't have done it uh, because he didn't have to. I've not heard anything negative about the advisors that were under it. And for the industry, I thought it was fascinating because I thought the deal was very creative. Nobody would have expected uh, Goldman Sachs Asset Management to want to reach out to the mass affluent market like they did. Um, It really shows that Solomon is doing some things at Goldman that his predecessors were not as interested in doing. I think long-term, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a deal that other people are going to try to replicate. It probably was a unique fit for Goldman Sachs to do something like that. And Duran, you know, unlike a lot of these firms and, and Hightower and Focus would be examples of those that kept their affiliate organizations, personalities and identities intact, Duran really was focused on building a national branded RIA. That's a much easier 
type of organization to fold into Goldman than one of these other roll-ups that are really aggregations of independent firms would have been. So I gave uh, Duran props for um, carving a path that nobody else really was going down and showing that that was available. But I think it may be Look back in the look back, it may have been kind of a one off. I don't know that we're really going to see other deals that look like the the United Capital sale to Goldman Sachs. But that raises the question. So there may not be deals quite as mega as Goldman buying United Capital. But do you think that there's a possibility that, let's say, regional firms or boutique firms, so those that are not RIAs, not structured as RIAs now, but brokerage firms that have, you know, not necessarily Morgan Stanley or UBS, but smaller regional sized brokerage firms that could have interest in acquiring RIAs or independent firms. It's possible. The advantage that Goldman had, obviously, is they've got a huge brand. So you didn't have to worry a whole lot about overlaying their brand on United Capital over time and running off clients. Um, In the case of a regional BD broker-dealer, you might not have that same presence that would translate or transfer value to a larger regional RIA and therefore be as successful in a transaction. I think that in most cases, uh, the RIA model is stronger than the broker-dealer model. And as a consequence, a lot of people who are running RIAs are going to see themselves as having a a better economic returns from hanging on to their businesses than they would to surrender them to a regional investment bank. Yeah, and I would go one step further. So that's from the valuation perspective, and I think you're probably right. But over the years, we've had many firms, large and small brokerage firms, come to us looking to get in. They see what's going on in the RIA space and the frothy M&A market and want in on it. So we've had many brokerage firms over the years come to us asking us if we can help them to identify RIA sellers. And while on paper, the notion especially of a an exhausted sort of overworked one-arm paper hanger RIA, the notion of now being able to have a firm. And in large part, regional firms have great names within their local market. So the notion of being able to offload the minutia of running the business and capitalize or leverage a name that will have more meaning and more cachet than their own can be appealing. But in almost every instance, what stops those deals is the incongruence, and there's that word again, between the ethos of the buyer and the ethos of the seller. The ethos of the seller is about being entrepreneurial and looking at staff as family and not wanting to be put in the box. And the ethos of the buyer is about margins and about you know one staff person for every $1.2 million in production and being put in a box and and giving up control. And I think it's that incongruence that probably makes it more unlikely almost than whether that's going to be the best deal paid. I think that um, it's also fair to say that investment banks and their broker-dealer arms, they're just wired very differently than RIAs. BDs are product businesses. RIAs are service businesses. And Although in some regards, you can look around at lots of examples over time of 
service companies dreaming of having products and product companies dreaming of offering services. And that's not just true in finance. That's kind of true across the whole spectrum of the economy. People who work in RIAs aren't brought up to push products. And BDs aren't really brought up, people who work in broker-dealers aren't really brought up to offer services. And so as a consequence, it's a real uh, mismatch of wiring to try to put an RIA culture inside of a broker-dealer. Yeah, well said. I I think that's a good way to put it, and I agree with that. Um, Matt, I think you have, or I know you have some strong opinions on the pending Schwab TD merger. Good for the industry, good good for either of the firm, good for the advisors associated with them. I don't see anything good coming out of it, to be blunt. You know, and I don't have any internal access to the slide deck that uh, planned this grand strategy, but it very much in the look back appears that Schwab cut commissions in order to put more pressure on firms like TD Ameritrade to fall into their arms. And they thought with all that client cash, they could sweep the cash and lend it back out and they would earn something on the spread. Now, now here we sit, uh, we've got a very volatile market and net interest margins are falling. So Schwab has, and as a consequence, others in the industry, they've given up their revenue stream from trading and they have tried to replace it with a revenue stream that is diminishing. I've got to believe that there are some folks there in the strategic group at Schwab that kind of regret what they've done. Regardless, um, is it good for the RIA space? Well, no, because it it narrows the available ecosystems that the RIAs can deal with. Uh, Schwab was already plenty big. Anybody who wanted to be a part of the Schwab ecosystem was there. And those who didn't, who were with TD, have now lost that option. It's probably good for BNY Mellon and Raymond James and the other um, custodial ecosystems that exist for the RIA industry. And it's probably a good reminder for RIAs that it's not a bad idea to be custodian agnostic in, uh, in how they uh, provide their services to clients. Multi-custodial, sure. And how about your thoughts quickly on the Morgan Stanley acquisition of E-Trade Financial? I don't get it. It's a culture mismatch. Um, it's, again, maybe something that looked interesting on paper, but an E-Trade customer isn't interested in the kind of things that Morgan Stanley does and vice versa. Is it possible to create a firm within a firm? I assume that's what they're going to try to do. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the days when the mainline airline carriers tried to create uh, cut rate shuttle services and uh, none of them worked out. They didn't make any money. So unfortunately, it's probably going to bury the unique model that E-Trade had. Um, and you know, the, the E-Trades of the world were under a lot of pressure from Robinhood and firms like Robinhood. And I think that's one reason that these deals were accelerated uh, over the past year. But now we've been in this recent environment, uh, this recent market uh high volatility environment. Robinhood's uh, systems have kind of broken down several times, and it probably would have driven a lot of customers back to the E-Trades of the world if uh, they weren't being gobbled up by firms like Morgan Stanley. Matt, one final question, and this has been extraordinarily helpful and productive. So when this crisis passes, and we're all praying sooner rather than later, 
I'm wondering what you see as the trends in M&A over the, the next five years. And I guess as part of that, I'm wondering, you mentioned that while you don't expect valuations overall to go down, you do expect that the buyers will be willing to put less at risk or less cash in a deal up front or in a down payment. And so the structures may not be as favorable. So is it a good time to sell or buy now? Is somebody better to wait? What do you see transpiring over the next five years as we climb out of this and then well beyond it? You know, I think making radical changes to your business when there's so much market volatility is maybe inadvisable. I would probably, if I had the luxury of waiting, would do so. I don't expect cap rates to change, and I do think deal structures will. But as much as anything, I think it's a time when you've got to uh, really seriously ask yourself what your motivations are and what your interests are and long-term goals are. And in seeking out a buyer, focus more intensely than before on culture. I think this crisis highlights kind of the human dynamic of the investment management businesses because we're all dealing with numbers all day long, but the real currency of this business is the people involved. So if you think of the M&A and the future of M&A from that perspective, at least in the first few years coming out of this crisis, there's going to be a lot more emphasis, I think, on everybody's part about the relationship that's going to exist between sellers and buyers, certainly for the earnout period, but potentially even beyond that, because they're really handing over a part of themselves when they're selling these businesses. And it's important for them to know that the people they're handing them over to are people that they can trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's well said. Matt, thank you. This has been extraordinarily helpful and enlightening and relevant as far as what we're going through now. I am grateful for your time, as I said, on what feels like a moment's notice during a crazy time, and hope that you'll be willing to come back and share more with us at a later date. Thank you, Mindy. I've really enjoyed this, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to talk to you today. While Matt shared his unique lens on valuations and what lies ahead for the independent space, his perspective on the businesses that will thrive, that is, those built as all-weather firms, leaves us with an optimistic view on the post-crisis world going forward. I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration may require. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908 879-1002 or these days on my cell at 973-476-8578 or always by email mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. 
And a special thanks to AdvisorHub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.